0: Hi, I'm Chris Green, the History Chap, telling stories that bring British history to life. Did you know that in its 170-year history, the Victoria Cross, Britain's highest medal for valour, has been awarded to five Americans? Four were members of the Canadian Expeditionary Force during World War I. But the very first American to receive the VC was serving in the Royal Navy at the time of the American Civil War in a tiny and forgotten action in Japan. This is the story of that man, William Seeley, and the bombardment of Shimonosaki in 1864. William Seeley was born in the town of Topsham in the state of Maine on the 1st of May 1840. He seems to have spent most of his youth in the nearby harbours and after a family argument, while still a teenager, ran away to sea. In his desperation, he boarded the first ship he could find which happened to be a British-owned merchantman called the Salem. His travels took him to China and the British colony of Hong Kong and there he fell out to the Salem's captain when the latter refused Seeley permission to let off firecrackers on the vessel to celebrate American Independence Day. Jumping ship, William Seeley soon spent up what little money he had and now found himself stuck in a British colony far from home and flat broke. He decided that the only way out of his predicament was to join the Royal Navy and signed on as an ordinary seaman aboard HMS Euryalus, which was stationed there in Hong Kong. The year was 1862. The wooden-hulled, screw-propelled frigate HMS Euryalus had been launched in Chatham in 1853, just in time for the Crimean War. During that war, the 35-gun Euryalus saw action in the Baltic Campaign. There, she participated in the bombardment of the Russian fortress at Sveaborg in modern-day Finland. Following the war, she headed to the Mediterranean with Queen Victoria's second son, Prince Alfred, serving on board as a midshipman. By the time William Seely was signing on in 1862, HMS Euryalus, minus Prince Alfred, had been posted to the Royal Navy's China station. There she was part of the British military effort to stamp out the Taiping Rebellion in China. This uprising against the imperial government in Peking, or Beijing, lasted for 14 years, and the civil war and resulting famines cost the lives of an estimated 20 million Chinese. The British contribution was as much based upon protecting their trade in China as it was propping up the imperial government per se. It did, however, result in a British Army officer commanding part of the Imperial Chinese Army, Charles Gordon. His exploits were to earn him the nickname back in Britain of Chinese Gordon. And it was Chinese Gordon who would end up besieged by the Mahdi in Khartoum in the 1880s. And I've done a fair few talks about that subject. Check out my playlist at the end. Anyway, back to William Seeley, who incidentally claimed in later life he'd met Gordon whilst in China. By September 1862, He was sailing on board HMS Euryalus for Yokohama in Japan. The island nation had only opened her borders to foreign trade ten years beforehand when the American Commodore Matthew Perry had arrived in Yokohama Bay. And since then, American merchants have been joined by various Europeans, all intent on taking advantage of the new trading opportunity. But not everyone in Japan welcomed the arrival of the Westerners, partly because they threatened traditional Japanese values, and far more importantly, They threatened traditional feudal power structures. Local lords or daimyos held autonomous authority and had historically been able to do their own thing. Now the emperor, who for hundreds of years had been a bit of a figurehead, was starting to flex his muscles against the shoguns who tended to wield the real power. And it was the dynamics in this changing power within Japan that formed the backdrop to the film The Last Samurai starring Tom Cruise. In 1863, the daimyo of the Chosu clan, Mori Takachika, unilaterally decided to take the initiative against the foreigners by denying them access to his territory. This included closing the narrow Shimonosaki Strait to their shipping. Despite the fact that Mori was no fan of Western influence undermining traditional Japanese culture, or his power, he was more than happy to use foreign weapons against those very foreigners. So, whilst most of his artillery batteries overlooking the strait were antiquated cannons that fired cannonballs rather than shells, He did also possess five modern Dahlgren guns. Designed by American Admiral John Dahlgren in the late 1840s and early 50s, these guns were nicknamed soda bottles due to the shape of their muzzles and were being used extensively in the civil war that was raging in America at this very time. Maury's five Dahlgren guns could fire their 8-inch shells over 2,000 yards, which was more than enough to cover the narrow straits. He also had a small navy to enforce the closure too, his fleet included three American-built warships, the Six-Gun Daniel Webster, the Four-Gun Cochin, and the Ten-Gun Landrick, by now called the Kosi. On the 25th of June 1863, Maury's fleet attacked an American merchant ship, the SS Pembroke, in the Straits. Somehow, the captain of the Pembroke managed to outrun his pursuers, suffering only minimal damage. The following day, the French naval dispatch steamer, Crenchan Chan, was fired upon by Maury's artillery. Badly damaged, she too managed to turn around and sail away. Unlike the Pembroke, the French crew had suffered four casualties. Protests were submitted to the imperial government by both nations' senior diplomats in Japan. The traditional shogun leadership were keen to appease the western nations, but as I said earlier, the local feudal lords like Daimyo Mori were effectively laws unto themselves. There was a lull for a few weeks as the central government tried to negotiate with Mori to reopen the strait. Then on the 11th of July, the 16-gun Dutch warship, the Medusa, decided to force her way through. With more guns than any ship in Maury's navy, her captain was confident that he would be unopposed. And in one respect, he was right. The local Japanese fleet stayed away. However, as the Medusa sailed through the narrow waterway, the shore batteries opened up. 30 shells and cannonballs hit the Dutch warship, and nine members of her crew were either killed or wounded. The shocked captain returned fire and increased speed to clear the strait before he succumbed to any more casualties. Now things started to move quickly. Five days later, 16th of July, the American warship, USS Wyoming, arrived on the scene to retaliate for the attack on the Pembroke the previous month. In a two-hour battle, the Wyoming had to endure a bombardment from the Dahlgren guns, which had ironically been presented to the Japanese as a gift from the American government. To add to the irony, the Wyoming then proceeded to sink two of the American built ships in Maury's fleet. Four Americans were killed in the action, and another died later of his wounds. On the 20th of July, the French Navy now arrived, intent on extracting revenge for the attack on their ship and open the straits by force. This French intervention consisted of two warships and 250 marines, who landed and proceeded to destroy a village and one of Lord Maury's gun emplacements. However this action on behalf of France had not been sanctioned by the government in Paris but by their senior diplomat in Japan. Already embroiled in a war in Mexico where nearly 40,000 French troops were committed, the last thing Emperor Napoleon III wanted was a war on the other side of the world. The diplomat was reprimanded and would be recalled to France within the year. You have to hand it to Daimyo Mori. This local Japanese lord had taken on the French, the Dutch and the Americans and simply refused to back down. And for all their bombardments, the Western powers didn't have the resources to take him on. For the next year, the straits remained closed. Two months after that last bombardment, in September 1863, HMS Eurylus, complete with ordinary seaman William Seeley, arrived at Yokohama. En route from China, the British warship had also seen action against another feudal lord in Japan, in what became known as the Anglo-Satsuma War. It's got nothing to do with small oranges, and I will tell you that story in the future in my members channel. So maybe sign up at the end of this talk. For the next year, the Western powers negotiated with the Imperial government, who in turn negotiated with Mori. And whilst the negotiations seemed to run into a brick wall, Mori was busy destroying foreign property in his domain. Meanwhile, a growing armada of Western naval vessels arrived in Yokohama. Eventually, after Morrie had failed to acknowledge, let alone comply, with the British-led ultimatum, that International Armada set sail for the Shimonosa Quay Strait. The fleet consisted of nine Royal Navy ships, four Dutch Navy warships, and three French naval vessels. They were accompanied by 2,000 soldiers drawn from all three nations. This Allied fleet was commanded by British Admiral Sir Augustus Leopold Cooper, commander of their East Indies and China station. Cooper, who had joined the Royal Navy in 1823, decided to make HMS Euryalus his flagship. The notable absence from this fleet, based upon actions from the previous year, were the Americans. Rather like the French in Mexico, the Americans had bigger fish to fry than getting tangled up in a war in Japan. Whilst keen to ensure that Japanese markets remained open, President Lincoln was concerned that military involvement in Japan could deflect both Army and Navy resources from his fight with the Confederate States in the American Civil War. Actually, they weren't totally absent from this Allied fleet. An American chartered steamer, the USS ta sailed with them to show some sort of solidarity. But there was another American connection. Somewhere in the 500-strong crew on board Admiral Cooper's flagship was ordinary seaman William Seeley from Maine. On the 5th of September, 1864, the fleet sailed into the Shimonosaki Strait, and HMS Uralis led the bombardment of the shore batteries her 17 Armstrong guns sending 110-pound shells into the Japanese positions. By nightfall, all of Morrie's batteries had been silenced. However, overnight, the defenders managed to repair their batteries and the following morning they opened fire on the Allied fleet again. It was obvious to Admiral Cooper that he would need to send men ashore to capture and destroy the gun emplacements. It was now that William Seeley had his moment in history. The 24-year-old was a member of the 3rd Company of the Naval Brigade As they went ashore to capture the gun batteries. As they advanced inland, they started to encounter stiff resistance. Eventually, they reached a stockade held by troops loyal to Lord Morrie. His commanding officer, Lieutenant Edwards, asked for a volunteer to make a reconnaissance of the Japanese positions. Seeley stepped forward. All by himself, he slowly worked his way through the undergrowth to observe the stockade from close range. It was manned by over 300 men, and Seeley could make out light guns on top of the eight-foot palisade. Suddenly, he was spotted by the defenders. Running as fast as he could, he raced back to safety, chased by the Japanese, some in samurai armour, some firing arrows and some firing muskets. It was only when he reached the British lines that he realised he'd been wounded in the left arm. Nevertheless, he made his report and based upon his observations, Captain Alexander of the Euryalus planned his attack. Despite being injured, William Seeley armed himself with a naval cutlass and joined in the attack. The tenacity that the Japanese would be famed and feared for in World War II was evident even back in 1864. The attacking naval brigade advanced under a storm of arrows and musket shots. Captain Alexander fell, having taken a musket ball to his ankle. As he lay on the ground, ordinary Seaman Seeley rushed over. Even though he only had one useful arm, he managed to carry his officer back to a medical post. Refusing any aid for himself, he now rushed back to be in the thick of the battle. The attack was making slow but steady progress. 18-year-old midshipman Duncan Gordon Boys had been assigned to carry the colour into action. He was guarded by two senior NCOs acting as colour sergeants. The defence was so intense that one of these men was killed and the other 29-year-old, Thomas Pride, was severely injured. Pride staggered to his feet and continued to advance with midshipman Boys until ordered by their officer to retire. Grudgingly complying with the order, it was only afterwards that they realised the colour itself had been pierced in six places by musket balls. They'd probably had a narrow escape. With the naval brigade now closing on the stockade, the defenders simply melted away, although about 20 stayed to fight to the very end. By the end of that day, the 6th of September, sailors and troops from the Allied ships had seized all of Lord Morrie's artillery batteries. Many were blown up, although some guns were taken away as prizes. In fact, the guns taken by the French can still be seen at the Hôtel des Invalides in Paris. The Royal Naval Brigade lost seven men killed and 26 injured storming the stockade. Many of the British injured were treated on the American steamer that had accompanied the fleet. Two days later, the local Japanese forces surrendered. A peace treaty was negotiated in which the Allies would receive an indemnity of $3 million. The bombardment of Shimonoseki is a pretty much forgotten event in history. It plays a small part in a much bigger story that was taking place in Japan as the country moved on to the world stage. It also falls into the story that surrounds that change as the traditional semi-independent feudal nobility clashed with the imperial authorities for political control of the nation. Three Victoria Crosses were awarded to men participating in this action. The first two were to the survivors of the color party, midshipman Boys, and Thomas Pride. The third was to William Seeley, for his bravery in his solo reconnaissance and then joining in the fight despite being injured. He was the first ever American to receive Britain's highest medal for bravery. Somewhat bizarrely, he received this British honour for a forgotten action in Japan, whilst many of his compatriots were fighting each other in the American Civil War. All three men were presented with their medals by Admiral Sir Michael Seymour at Southsea near Portsmouth in September of the following year. Seymour himself had been a previous commander of the China Station, and Seymour Road in Hong Kong is named after him. Rather like HMS Eurylus, he was a veteran of the Baltic campaign during the Crimean War. And speaking of the Eurylus, she was retired a few years after this action in Japan, and was broken up in 1867. Seeley left the Royal Navy in 1866, and went back to sailing merchant ships, before retiring to Massachusetts. In the next 20 years, he would twice have his VC stolen from him. On the first occasion, It was anonymously sent to the British government in London, who forwarded it on to Seeley. The other time, Seeley reclaimed it after seeing it 18 months after the theft, for sale in a curiosity shop in America. William Seeley, VC, died in October 1914 and is buried at Staughton, Massachusetts. He is yet another one of those Victoria Cross recipients who seems to have been almost lost to history. Rather like his Victoria Cross, because, amazingly, it's gone missing for a third time. It was in the possession of his granddaughter in the 1930s and no one knows what's happened to it since. A vanished VC, earned in a forgotten battle, awarded to a forgotten American sailor. And yet, when the records are read and spoken, William Seeley has his place in history. The first American to be awarded the Victoria Cross. Thanks for joining me today and I hope you enjoyed that story from history. So many incredible stories about the Victoria Cross recipients. For instance, there's a great story about William Manley. He was the only man to be awarded the VC and the German Iron Cross. You can access that by becoming a supporter. Click on the subscribe button below this podcast or in the link in the description. I'm Chris Green, the History Chap. Thanks for your support. Keep well and I'll speak to you again very soon.